1: There's a new name in generative AI, and the consummate tastemaker has a flavor to watch for 2024. Motley Fool Money starts now.
2: Everybody needs money. That's why they call it money. The best things in life are free, but you can give them to the birds and bees need. From Fool Global Headquarters, this is Motley Fool Money.
1: It's the Motley Fool Money Radio Show. I'm Dylan Lewis. Joining me in the studio, Motley Fool Senior Analysts Andy Cross and Ron Gross. Gentlemen, great to have you both here. Hey, Dylan. you you doing, Dylan? We've got the pandemic's enduring impact on households and companies, some earnings updates from a couple fool favorites, and of course, stocks on our radar. But we are kicking off this week with the big macro. Ron, first Friday of the month, that means we've got a fresh jobs report. What did you see in the numbers?
2: You know, the report was a little stronger than expected, meaning more jobs were created. And the unemployment rate actually ticked down to 3.7% from 39 A lot of people are focusing on that number. It's, it's interesting to me. But more importantly, I think, everyone is keeping an eye on wages as a gauge of inflation. And wages were up by 0.4% for the m- month and 4% from a year ago. So, up for the month. But that 4% number is actually not that bad. That is not runaway inflation by any means. That is moderating, which I think people are going to like. So, I think these numbers actually bode well for a soft landing. And you can quote me, although I very well may be wrong, but I do think these numbers bode well for that. The market was mixed, but generally positive on Friday as a result of these numbers, but time will tell. I cannot wait to revisit this about 12 <laughs> months from
1: now and see exactly where we're checking in. All right. We see some, uh, some uptick in the arms race for generative AI. Andy? We have, this week, Google Parent Alphabet publicly launching Gemini, its AI model inside its chatbot. Uh, investors seem very happy to see this development. Shares up 5% this week on the news. What did you see?
3: Well, the timing of all this is very interesting considering the open AI drama that we're seeing and continue to see in the boardroom. It's this Game of Thrones contest between all of the great challenges, Google, Microsoft. We heard a lot of talk from coming from Andy Jassy at AWS and at Amazon at AWS. This was really interesting because Google has been investing in AI for years and years and years, and they have just been outrun by OpenAI and Microsoft over the last year. They tried to come out with some barred fireworks earlier this year. It really kind of flailed. And there's just a lot of questions about, like, what is their strategy? Well, clearly, they've been Investing and thinking a lot about this, they have all the leaders on board. Sundar Pichai was all about releasing this and doing a very slick video and the leaders and, and getting together all the different divisions. So it's it's a nice uh, for for shareholders and those of us who are really invested into um, the, the understanding AI. Um, this is actually a really neat development with this uh, Gemini 1.0 in three different phases: the Ultra, the Pro, and Nano, depending on the, your needs. Dylan, what I'm really excited about this is... is how they're going to use this at the enterprise for their clients as they think about the cloud buy-in with their clients and supporting their clients who are spending more and more money in the cloud, Google Cloud, and how those tools and their AI tools are going to drive that usage and encourage more and more adoption and usage of these tools for the Google Cloud. So, overall, very impressive. The technology was very impressive. And we'll see how it all develops over the next few months.
1: So You mentioned the enterprise segment there, Andy. And I think one of the things that's so interesting. This is a nascent space. I think we just lapped the one year anniversary or the one year birthday of of uh, OpenAI yep. being out there and available. Uh, on the generative AI side, I think one of the things that's very fun about the technology is it's visible. It's something you can interact with and play around with. Is there anything that you're watching or people can kind of keep an eye on as they're interacting with some of this stuff, just to see signs of people maybe taking a lead or developing in the space?
3: Well, let's just focus on the Google part to this. So they are talking about how over the next few months they're going to start to integrate this into more tools like search. Now, the the pro version is their, is their backbone to, to Bard Search, which is, has been available for a while. Now it's getting even more and more enhanced. But you'll start to see this across the entire platform of the tools that we use, even consumers, let alone clients, so, or let alone enterprises. So you'll start to see more and more of adoption of these tools into the tools that we use every day. I'm really interested to see what Apple does because got Siri Search and Siri usage and their ai tools there are, are on the consumer side leave a lot to be desired so it'll be very interesting to see how they how they innovate in that space but look for more and more ai tools integrated throughout the the tools like Gmail or whatever you might use uh, as a consumer, because that will be a, a really um, a litmus test on how fast this is adopting in the consumer side.
2: I just got a, a new iPhone and it crippled me for like a week until I could figure <laughs> it all out. So I can only imagine what AI's got coming for me. I don't think anyone's pounding
1: the table on Siri's capabilities. I think Siri does leave a lot to be desired, yeah. as you were saying there, Andy. All right, from one era of technology to another, we have a curious development over at GameStop. Uh, Ron, this week the meme stock company announced that company cash can be used to invest in public companies uh, by company leadership, Ryan Cohen. Um, I'm, I'm a little curious. This sounds like an odd update. Is this an odd
2: update? It's an odd update. It's certainly not common, as one uh, esteemed analyst called it, inane and alarming. GameStop should be focusing on turning its business. If they believe in that business, perhaps they should be buying back stock with their cash, rather than making other equity investments. But that turnaround is not going well. Uh, Recent sales were down 9%, 25% since the same period in 2019. Losses did narrow. I'll give them that. Aggressive cost cuts, store closing in Europe. That helps, but it's certainly not growing the business, it's shrinking the business, um, which, if necessary, so be it. But I guess they're looking for some other ways to generate value. This is tricky. they got to be careful. They could end up violating the, uh, the Investment Act if more than 40% of their assets are in investments that are unrelated to their actual business. So, I'm sure their lawyers have, have informed them, but take it from me that um, you should be careful and keep an eye on that number. One of
1: the other things I saw related to this update was Ryan Cohen will also be able to invest alongside GameStop personally in anything that he's directing the company to own. Um, it seems to me like so much of the GameStop story is a bet on Ryan Cohen, and we've seen a lot of interest in that. Um, to me, this only further solidifies that that is kind of the case here. Yeah, and
2: I'll remind folks that Ryan is is and his company is still the largest shareholder of Chewy, um, largest shareholder of GameStop. He's somewhat famous for the meme craze, trading in and out of GameStop, Bed Bath and Beyond. So he's an interesting uh, figure. Disclosure, disclosure, disclosure. If he's buying stock alongside a public company, I think everyone needs to know when and how much and why and if these things are happening behind the scenes, it will not go well. All right, coming up after the break, more Chewy. We've got an earnings
1: rundown and follow-up on last week's radar stocks. Stay right here. This is Motley Fool Money. Welcome back to Motley Fool Money. I'm Dylan Lewis, here in the studio with Andy Cross and Ron Gross. We've got an earnings parade and some updates from a couple different companies that are heavily followed in the Fool universe. Andy, we're going to kick off with DocuSign. It was our colleague Jason Moser's radar stock last week. Now we've got some updated earnings. What did you see in the company's results?
3: Well, there wasn't a lot baked into the expectations coming to DocuSign. The stock has really struggled here. Decent results showing you know, healthy growth in revenues and a better margin picture. We'll get to that in a second. But billions continue to be on the lower side, and the forecasts of low single-digit growth is not super exciting. Um, new CEO Alan Thiggison continues to try to position DocuSign as the leader in both e-signature, and more and more about contract lifecycle management. So he's invested a lot in that and he continue wants to grow the business above that 10% range. We'll see how he does. So revenue's up 8.5% to 700 million. Billings, as I mentioned, up 5% to 692 million. They added 36,000 customers. That was up 11%. Uh, direct Digital continues to be the largest. Compu- contributor, and the direct consumer growth, so just like through the digital platform and directly with DocuSign, was up 15%. Steady gross margins at 80%. What you're seeing now with DocuSign is really a focus on um, smart investments. They continue to invest a lot in R and D, research and development, with 19% of sales. That's consistent as for the past couple quarters. Their operating margin was up twenty. Was up. Uh, their operating income was up 27%. Their operating margin was 27% versus 23%. Cash earnings were 79% versus 57. So you're seeing a lot of investment go into managing the business. Driving profits and driving cash flow. So, the the challenge is that the macro environment is not doing a lot for uh, for them right now. They are seeing some of their verticals improving and stabilizing from the first half, especially in things like real estate and some of the other verticals like technology. But overall, it's just it's no longer the twenty percent growth story that DocuSign used to be, dealing. It's much more about that single to high de- high digit kind of grower. And Thigges and his team really want to get it back above ten percent. International will be a big driver of that, so we'll have to watch what we do. you do. You're basically got a value stock trading at 17 times free cash flow, can grow in the in the mid single digits. That's a pretty good deal at this price.
1: So it's looking attractive to you, Andy.
3: Yeah, I think I I bought a little bit earlier this uh, this summer. Um down a little bit on it, and I think long term you you'll you'll do pretty well. Nothing like a fireworks, like you may have seen back during the COVID days, of course.
1: Ron, we also have an update on the state of Fido. Pet supplier Chewy posted earnings this week. Uh,
2: This is a stock that bottomed out a bit in 2023. Are there positive signs in the earnings report? I think if you look under the hood, there are some positive signs. The stock initially got whacked; the the investors just did not like what they saw, but the stock kind of rebounded as the week progressed. Um, They did miss on both the top and bottom lines, which I think was that caused that knee jerk reaction. But I'll point out some some interesting metrics here. So, net sales were up eight percent, and management noted that Chewy gained market share during the period. Pretty good. Net sales per active customer up nearly 14%. That means their average customer is spending more money on the platform than in previous periods, also important. And auto ship customer sales were up 13% and now represent over 76% of net sales. So you have customers spending more per customer. And that recurring revenue is occurring because they're mostly all on auto-ship. That can be a powerful combination. They ended the third quarter with about 20.3 million active customers. That is down slightly sequentially from the second quarter. Let's keep an eye on that. But margins did widen. The company reported a loss of around $36 million. Adjusted EBITDA, if that's your <laughs> cup of tea, Dylan, uh, was $82.1 million positive, up $11.7 million. You can maybe take away some things there that 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 at least from a cash flow perspective, not taking stock-based <laughs> compensation into account, um, that some things are, are traveling in the right direction. EBITDA margins, adjusted EBITDA margin, three percent, so thin. But there should be some leverage in this business as they continue to grow, and it, and, and there's room for that. times sales from a stock perspective. I'm not a sales ratio kind of guy, but that could indicate some cheapness.
1: Wow, a sales multiple and adjusted earnings numbers? Ron, what's going on over there? (laughs) Anything for our
2: listeners? (laughs) One of the things that jumped out to me in this
1: report was the company really emphasizing its pharmacy business. Uh, I think they said it's about to hit a 1 billion run rate, and they are the number one pet pharmacy in the United States. This is not a particularly old initiative. This is, I think, in year four. Or five for them,
2: Ron. Are you surprised by that? It's taken them a while to get to scale, but that doesn't surprise me. I think it would. Pharmacies should be a higher margin business than their typical hard goods segment, so that could bode well for overall margins, overall profitability, and and kind of buy into or or make the growth story even more powerful. From pets to people, shares of Lululemon now
1: at an all time high following the company's latest earnings result. Andy, what is pushing the company so high this week?
3: Well, interesting. After the earnings came out, the pre-market and post-market um, print was not really inspiring. Now, you, we saw it just hit those all-time highs, as you mentioned. It continues to be the leader when it comes to not just athleisure, but really high-end apparel. The apparel market in general is not doing that well, but Lululemon continues to do well. Revenue is up 18%. Women, the women's business was up 19%. Men up 15%. Their accessories up 29%. International was a big driver up more than 49%. Um, North America up 12%, so a little bit on the lower side, of course, is much more saturated. The comp sales were up 13%, 9% on the store side, 19% 19% on the e-commerce side. They added 63 new stores over the past year. That's about 17% increase in square footage. They had a record Thanksgiving Day sales cycle. The U.S. market share continues to grow. was up about 1.5 percentage points. And you're seeing improvements on the gross profit and the operating profit side, too. So, Dylan, it's a business that continues to speak to their customer. Um, continues to deliver what those customers want, and those customers are continuing to show willingness to pay for it. Now, there was some concern a little bit on the guidance, especially, I think, on some of the men's side that maybe men... Are becoming a little bit more uh, particular about what they may spend on and how much they're willing to spend. So I think that was a little bit of concern when you look forward to the growth prospects for the fourth quarter, which is earnings gro- sales growth of about 13 to 14 percent. But overall, this is just a winning business. Their strategy continues to win. They have that new deal with Peloton that um, is, is hopefully going to open up more and more of, of the market for those who are using Peloton. And th- that's why the stock is really at an all time high, it continues to do well.
2: I don't know if this is a bellwether, but Ron Gross owns two pairs of Lululemon <laughs> pants and hasn't ever seen a yoga studio. So they have golf pants. They've got yeah. joggers. Um, don't sleep on the men's. Yeah, stuff
3: and like their Im- their inventories were down four percent. So they're not. It's not like a discounting story. Story. They are continuing to sell very high margin profit product, and their customers are buying it like Ron Gross.
1: <laughs> and I believe they're on your shopping list as well,
3: Andy. They are on my shopping list. I, I've been I've been looking for some pants, and it's about time that I stepped up because I've been a little bit more of the discount kind of guy, but I think now Lululemon may be the way to go. My brother uses Lululemon, so he listens to the show there. So, Gordo, there you go.
1: You know, we are opening ourselves up to advertising at some point. We (laughs) we may consider Lululemon (laughs) as a sponsor. We have some uh, host Red experience right there for you. How (laughs) perfect is that? All right, we are going to wrap up our earnings updates in the grocery aisle. J.M. Smucker up 7% on strong earnings this week.
2: Ron, moms like you continue to choose (laughs) Jif, even at higher prices. (laughs) And Uncrustables, it turns out, (laughs) which was it's very strong. This is an interesting story to me, and I think it's one investors should maybe take a look at. The stock got whacked back in September on the announcement that they were going to acquire hostess for $5.6 billion. And you know, perhaps they thought the fit was interesting or they were paying too much, but it created a a situation where the stock was perhaps inexpensive. But they've got a great stable of brands. You know, it's Folgers and Smuckers and GIF and Milkbone. It's a family run business. CEO is fifth generation of Smucker, which is better than gross. So it's an interesting company to me. And they're 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 divesting some of their less profitable brands. The quarter, not bad. Comp sales up 7%. The Uncrustables was a hotspot there, 22 percent increase. Uh, sales volume contributed 4%. Price contributed 3%. So you've got both higher volumes and the ability. Ability to pass along price increases, rather powerful in my opinion. Gross margins widened pretty significantly and profits were strong. They did lower their guidance a little bit, uh, a little bit of fear about the macro economy and spending out there. But based on current forward guidance, only 12 and a half times forward guidance, they've increased their dividend for 21 consecutive years, 3.8 percent yield, not too shabby. I do think some risks include. We're moving towards a healthier eating situation. The weight loss drugs are going to be very interesting uh, for companies like Smucker and Hostess. But I do think this is one worth looking at. So
1: Andy mentioned earlier that there was a kind of surprisingly good quarter for Lululemon. We're seeing surprisingly strong results uh, on the grocery aisle as well. Do you feel like the long-awaited consumer tightening is maybe taking a little bit longer, or or may or may not re-
2: materialize, Ron? Consumers right now are are still in this shying away from big-ticket, non-discretionary items, and focusing on the food items that they need to feed their family. Uh, The peanut butters, the jellies, the the Uncrustables, and the coffee, which we all Mm. (laughs) desperately— Can't give that up. So, um, that'll be interesting to watch, because the consumer, I think, is also taxed. Savings accounts are coming down, credit card balances are going up. This all— feeds into this whole big macro thing about is, are we going through a recession or a soft landing? But I think stable brands like Smucker owns are going to be good consistently over long periods of time.
1: All right, Ron Gross, Andy Cross. Fellows, we're going to catch you guys a little bit later in the show. Up next, we've got a look at the business and economic fragility that the COVID pandemic exposed and how we might fix it. Stay right here. You're listening to Motley Fool Money.
4: with Motley Fool Money here to tell you about a vehicle that is redefining sporting luxury, the Range Rover Sport. The first thing I noticed when I sat down in the driver's seat is that I felt like I was in a cockpit. You're up off the ground in a focused interior that promotes exhilarating driver engagement. I also really appreciated the overhead 360-degree camera view that let me know exactly where I was going as I was backing out of the parking space. I went for a drive in the Range Rover Sport out in Littleton, Colorado, tested the accelerator just a little bit and felt the performance and agility. It's an instinctive drive with engaging on-road dynamics and effortless composure. To put it plainly, the Range Rover Sport is powerful. It's also quiet and comfortable. Advanced cabin technologies such as active noise cancellation and cabin air purification offer new levels of comfort and refinement. The third generation Range Rover Sport is the most desirable, advanced, and dynamically capable yet. I'd like to invite you to visit LandRoverUSA.com to learn more about the Range Rover Sport.
1: Welcome back to Motley Fool Money, I'm Dylan Lewis. We're still waiting our way out of the pandemic, but we're now in a position to process and reflect what happened and the response. Journalist and author Bethany McLean has made a career out of sorting through complicated and often calamitous events, and her latest book, The Big Fail, takes a look at the last three years, how we responded to COVID, and the lasting effects on households, businesses, and the economy. Motley Fool Money's Deidre Woolard spoke with McLean about her book and the issues she's paying attention to as we head into 2024.
5: In your writing career, one of the things it feels like to me from the outside, reading your books, is you've kind of uh, focused on uncovering the decisions that lead to big outcomes, often often not, not the best outcomes. Here, some of this was the urgency, I think, around the pandemic led to uh, poor decision-making. And I think that's, that's a theme I've seen in your other books, too. I know why I make stupid decisions based on urgency, but why does it happen so much in business, given that we've got information, you've got preparation. And yet when the moment comes, bad mistakes just keep happening.
0: I think on some level it's completely understandable. And back to the first question you asked, because when what is inconceivable happens, even if it was always a possibility of which we should have been aware, we're, we're all just shocked. And I often say that the best lesson anybody can can learn is that when we learned in kindergarten: you know, use your imagination, because these things that you think in advance, oh, that can't happen, that won't happen, too often they, they do. Whether it's the global financial crisis or the, or the pandemic, right? They 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 do they do happen. Um, and I forgive everybody some some. Degree of shock when 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 that happens, but I also think the reality of our system, and it's why I I find this. I find some of the lessons from the pandemic are are not, they're not just about the pandemic; they're about our society and our business, uh, the way business operates. We've just stretched everything to the breaking point in the name of efficiency, in the name of profits, and I think we've forgotten that resiliency matters too. And so when something unexpected happens, it turns out often that there's not a lot of padding in the system to absorb it. And so people panic in part because of the lack of padding. So one thing that exacerbated the panic, panic one concrete example is we couldn't get PPE because we'd outsourced all the manufacturing of PPE to, to China. And we couldn't just turn on a dime and start manufacturing masks and gowns and all the other things and gloves and all the other things we needed here. Um, and so that's an example of just lack of resiliency as a result of having made things very, very fragile in the name of increased efficiency and profits. And there, there's a cost to that. We forget that there's a cost to that.
5: You have a chapter on the Fed's moves and quantitative easing. There was this line that stuck with me about how the enormity of the Fed's rescue sort of revealed the fragility of our financial system. And I think that's a theme throughout, throughout the book about the fragility of various systems and just how much the Fed had to prop up everything, I think to the extent that a lot of us are unaware of, and you go into detail in the, in the book, but it feels to me as, you know, as an observer, like the government can't do this indefinitely, but companies sort of assume that it will. So are these kind of short-term fixes for, for long-term problems in the financial market as a whole?
0: I think that's that's so well said, and the theme of the book is fragility, and I, I, fragility in so many of our systems, but yes, I don't think people, because the Fed stepped in in such a massive way in the spring of 2020, we've all just said, okay, great, the Fed fixed it all, it's it's it's, it's yeah. not a problem, <laughs> but but it, it, it really is, because every time there's been an issue, whether it's long-term capital management, then the global financial crisis, now the pandemic, the Fed has had to step in in a bigger and bigger way, really strong- stretching the limits of its power, and in some ways, not legally, but in some ways, exceeding the bounds of its authority in that the Fed is supposed to be the the lender of last resort to the regulated banking system. We all talked a lot about the shadow banking system after the global financial crisis. The shadow banking system got many times bigger. It didn't shrink. And most of the Fed's rescue in the spring of 2020 was due to problems in the shadow banking system, which supposedly the reforms after the financial crisis were going to help fix that. And so the problem is twofold. One is just is sort of more of an intellectual issue. Like do, you, do you want the Fed having to step in in a bigger and bigger way in order to fix problems that are supposedly outside the Fed's purview? Um, what does that mean about how fragile our system is? But the sort of more existential question is what happens if it doesn't work? What happens if the Fed can't? Now that the markets, everyone expects the Fed can always fix it. What happens if the Fed can't fix it? Then what do we do? yeah
5: yeah that 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 is a big concern. And the other aspect of it too the the paycheck P- protection program and the P- the PPP, like looking back on that system, you know, at, certainly we had some of the scandals with large companies, you know taking money and then and then giving it back. But do you think large companies uh, it seems like the funnel of there was kind of broken in terms of being able to get the money to the right places is Is that something that you see has been? fixed it all? Or do you think if we end up in a similar situation again, we'll have the same problem of not knowing, you know, it all becomes a black box. We don't know where the money's going.
0: Yeah, I think I think it is it is a big problem in a in a, an economy that is so tied to the capital markets. Um, we the capital markets are just set up; it's innate in the way it's structured that anything that benefits the capital markets is going to benefit big companies, not small companies, and it's going to benefit the rich uh, and not 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 the poor. So that's part of why our our book that's part of the subtitle of our book who 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 america helps and who it leaves behind because if you have a massive rescue program like like the fed did then you're going to make borrowing money really cheap for really big companies but it doesn't do anything for the local restaurant or the small business on on down down the block and you're going to do a lot to increase asset prices for those who own assets which are the wealthy in our society but you, you're, you're, you're you're not that doesn't do much in fact if anything that's negative as inflation sets in for those at the bottom end of the socioeconomic <laughs> spectrum and so it's we have to think differently in a society where our, our means of monetary disbursement has been through the fed um it we, if that's the way it's going to be then we have to think differently about what what about how that plays out and what that means let's talk a little bit
5: about uh the vaccines because you know making a vaccine isn't certainly isn't easy not always profitable so i mean the the so the, the what what happened? I mean, it's pretty impressive. But looking at it, one of the things that I was really fascinated by was the different companies and and sort of how they are now. Because for for like a Pfizer or a Johnson and Johnson, you know, these are big companies, and then making a big move. But Moderna, you take a company that was, you know, still in startup phase, not really having a product out there, and they they go from being this minor biotech to now this major player. But now they're on the other side of this and, uh, you know, I'm sort of watching it from an investment perspective. I'm really watching what's next for them. What did you learn about it covering it from the journalistic side?
0: So I thought the vaccines were actually an inspiring part of the story and perhaps the only one, but there was a recognition on the part of at least some government officials that, that namely Alex Azar, who was in the Bush administration and then worked um, um, at Eli Lilly and then came back to the Trump administration as the Secretary of Health and Human Services, that the private market was not going to produce a vaccine on, on its own, at least not on any reasonable timeframe. And I think that's so important because we, if you're a rabid believer in the free market, you tend to think the free market will fix everything. We need a vaccine. Companies are going to produce one. And no, you have to understand the unique dynamics of every market to understand what 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 may need to be done? What incentives may need to be to be to be to be set? What may need to be done differently? And so, in the case of the vaccines, Azar looked at it, realized that pharmaceutical industries have grown to hate the vaccine business because it's not profitable, it's not highly profitable, um, because governments are the major buyers. Because too many times they've raced to the rescue to develop vaccines, only to find out their vaccines aren't needed. They've taken a hit in the stock market. Investors have been mad, um, and they don't have the means to do this really quickly without government. Government help and so the government got involved and said how do we set all the preconditions to make this to make this possible and that was operation warp speed and i think it's a huge testament to how government and the private sector can work together and also to the importance of the rules that govern a market to really looking at them and understanding instead of just saying oh the free market will we'll take care of it um, for moderna it's really fascinating they were it was kind of a sketchy company <laughs> and the ran up to the pandemic because they, they they hyped their products a lot or their research a lot and never produced anything. And so people, people, people were skeptical of them, but then they did come through with, with a vaccine, obviously. And the question is what, what that means going forward. And I've, I've honestly heard both sides of the argument, and I'm not sure where I come out. One side of the argument is this is the mRNA is the future, and now that we have figured out the manufacturing of an mRNA-based product, um, there are so many improvements that can be made, and now this opens the door to mRNA as a therapy for all these other um, for all these other diseases. The other argument I've heard is it's not that simple, and mRNA is still a trickster, and it's going to be more difficult than Moderna is saying, and I'm I'm not sure we know the answer to that yet. Uh, and it's going to be really interesting to see what happens. I want to ask you
5: a sort of specific business-related question? Because at, at the Motley Fool, one of the things that our analysts look at is companies buying back stock. And you've got this line in the book about Intel saying that you know if Intel could reinvest some of the uh, 130 billion it's spent on, on buybacks uh, in, in a decade, in two decades, it would have had a better shot of you know reclaiming its former glory. So right now, we're in another situation with a lot of buybacks. Do you feel like companies are making a mistake there?
0: So I think it's hard. I think that the... I'm going to give you a pretty, a sort of nuanced answer because it's really easy to say, yes, how terrible they should be taking that money and investing in buildings. But the problem is they haven't seen anything to invest in. And so part of the problem with semiconductor manufacturing is TSMC has a huge advantage. They can do it much more cheaply. So in a world where bottom line profits were the most important thing, of course, everybody was going to outsource more and more to TSMC. And even now with the CHIPS Act, it's really unclear that semiconductors manufactured in America... Things are going to be way more expensive. It's, it's unclear that people people are going to are going to pay for them. So I think it's it's not as simple as bad company who took all this money and didn't invest in the U.S. It's that there's been these fundamental changes in our economy such that investing in the U.S. has not seemed like like a viable option. But I think we have to look at that and understand what's what's, what's going on and try to do something to address it. Because in the end, a country where everything we need is made somewhere else is, is, is a pretty, speaking of fragility, is a pretty fragile place. So, but I think, but I think the issues are, the underlying issues are far more complicated than buybacks are bad.
5: Oh yeah, absolutely. And I think the, the other thing about, about the CHIPS Act and, and, you know, building here is just one part of it. The, the education to make sure that we have the workers who can, who can, you know, can, yeah. vamp, that's a whole other that's a whole other category.
0: I remember talking to somebody about TSMC and hearing that in Taiwan, basically the best job you can get is go to work at TSMC. That's just amazing. That's 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 what you aspire to, and so that creates this self reinforcing loop, right? Where that's what people want to do. That's the best and the brightest. That's the best place to be. And how we go back and recreate that in the U.S. I I I, I don't know.
5: Well, last question for you. You've got this book done. You've obviously, you probably, I'm sure you have something else that you're working on. So what are you focused on now and what kind of big stories are capturing your imagination?
0: So I wrote a piece for a Business Insider about Goldman Sachs and some of the turmoil there, which was really interesting. As you mentioned, that's where I started my my career. So I have a tie to the place, albeit from, from decades ago at, at, at this point. But I'm, I'm continuing to watch all the things that we, we, we wrote about in the book and particularly some of the um, ongoing ramifications of Federal Reserve policy and what that means in the disparate regulatory regimes for regula- regulated banks versus private equity firms and hedge funds and how that plays out for our for for our, for our financial system I think that's a really interesting question going going forward um, what it means that vast swaths of the market are now under the control of private equity and private credit if they control that much are they really Private, uh, and I think I think these things are, are 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 really interesting questions. And then some of the divides in our society. You know, we all got fixated on that Federal Reserve survey that said um, the median net worth of Americans went up 37 percent in the pandemic. Woohoo, isn't that great? But but that number masks um, median, as as a, <laughs> as any mathematician knows, is a tricky concept. Um, yeah. <laughs> and that number masks a lot of a lot of problems under underneath it. And I. I, I just hope I think we we have we have we have a lot of fundamental problems and and I hope we can I hope we can tackle some of them
1: Anthony McLean's work the big fail is out now anywhere you find books coming up after the break Ron Gross and Andy cross return with a couple stocks on their radar stay right here you're listening to motley Fool money
2: it was Christmas Eve, babe, and
0: the drunk tank and-
1: As always, people on the program may have interests in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against, so don't buy or sell anything based solely on what you hear. I'm Dylan Lewis, joined again by Andy Cross and Ron Gross. We're getting all kinds of previews of 2024 as 2023 comes to a close. And Spicemaker McCormick just dropped their flavor forecast for the upcoming year. According to the company, Tamarind is the flavor to watch in 2024. Ron, Will you be using tamarind grilling in the new year?
2: You know, if you're a fan of the tartaric acid in in it, then it's a, quite a good meat tenderizer. So you, you could, for sure, use it as part of your grilling. But it's, it's very versatile, sweets, sours. Savory dishes. Um, it goes a lot of places. It gives a color, a yellowish color to the food. There's things you can work with. I think that sounded a little gastronomical there,
1: Andy. I, he was really getting into some
3: some serious lingo. He's TMF gastronomical, So <laughs> there you go. Um, I, I it's a it's a key ingredient for pad Thai. So if you like curries and you like some of those kinds of Asian dishes, of which I do, you're you're a fan of Tamron, even if you don't know it. If
1: you're keeping score at home, the flavor of the year in 2023 was a Vietnamese. And Cajun style seasoning. And and I don't know that I saw that popping up a ton in restaurants and in dishes, but I will say I was seeing a lot of fusion food this year, Ron.
2: Does, it doesn't have a name. This
1: so-called uh, last year. I think it was their own seasoning. It I think I think be. they were kind of building up their own book a little bit.
3: Huh? I think saffron's delicious.
1: getting the
2: short end of the stick. <laughs> Where, where's saffron
1: and all of this? <laughs> Just maybe maybe old. that's 2025, Ron. You gotta wait if you want saffron.
3: <laughs> give me some old bay. <laughs> all
1: right, let's get over to stocks on our radar. Our man behind the glass, Dan Boyd, is gonna hit you with a question. Ron, you're up first. What are you looking at this week?
2: I'm looking at Target, TGT. It's really interesting to me. As many know, Brian Cornell has been the driving force behind Target's past successes and the current attempt to right-size the business. He's been CEO since 2014. He uh, was involved with the acquisition of Shift to boost same-day deliveries. Target has definitely been struggling with their inventory mix. Um, They were much too in big-ticket items because of COVID. They didn't pivot quickly enough. There was too many discretionary items on, on the books. They've been working inventory out for quite some quarters now. and I think it's looking like they have it somewhat under control. They had a big controversy because of Pride Month. A lot of folks um, boycotted the stores there. I'm hoping that is largely behind them. Shrink does remain a concern, as it does with most retailers' um, theft and, and other inventory losses. Uh, the, this quarter, a modest revenue beat. Uh, operating margins improved dramatically. They've got a 3.3% yield, 52 consecutive years of increases. Trading only 14.7 times earnings versus someone like Walmart at 23 times. I think Target, if you're interested in a little bit of a turnaround, is an interesting one to look at. Dan, a question about Target.
1: Ron, I'm glad you said it was a turnaround play because Target, with all of its shrink problems, which were mostly self-inflicted, and its just you know litany of cheap, cheesy crap in its stores, doesn't seem like a great investment to me.
2: Crap being the technical term <laughs> for lower-priced merchandise.
1: I think that was a comment. I don't think that was a question. <laughs> just to be clear. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Andy, what is on your radar? Yeah,
3: changing changing away from the turnarounds, MongoDB symbol MDB provides cloud-based unstructured databases to um, thousands of clients. It has hundreds of developers every month that have joined its, its, its platform. It's a leading, flexible, cloud-based, database-structured um, software out there. Retention rates very high at 120, uh, more than 120%. Clients with more than 100,000 annual billings is up 28% the last quarter. Their new search tool, Atlas Vector Search, allows developers to search this data and use it for all those large language models that are driving a lot of AI the growth rates have been over say 40% for the past 3 years that has now slowed like many tech Company's recent growth has slowed, and their guidance for the fourth quarter was 19. percent. So not super inspiring. I think the market was hoping for a little bit better. The stock has more than doubled over the past year, so it's done very well. It sold off in that news because of some kind of the so-called whisper numbers. We're looking for a little bit higher growth in the uh, in the fourth quarter. They're now starting to generate some of those some free cash flow. Their adjusted margins, if you start backing out some of that <laughs> stock compens, pesky stock compensation, they're starting to show profit growth there. It's a $28 billion market cap with $700 million in cash into it. The trick here is, it still sells at 17 times sales. A year ago, it sold at 18, eight, 8 times sales, so mm. much different there. So, still looking at it as, as a watch list, I don't own it, but I know a lot of Motley Fool uh, members out there do.
1: Man behind the glass, DB. A question about MongoDB. When you guys hear MongoDB, do you
3: think about Mongo from Blazing Saddles? Hundred percent, hundred percent. Ever ever since this company came public, that's what has been my, my my thought about this that's company. Great. Does that
1: make you want to invest in it?
3: <laughs> well, I have not, and I wish I had because the stock's done very well over the last few years.
1: All right, Dan. Which one is going on your watch list this week? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Mongo, I guess. I guess. Target. I mean. Uh, the turnaround play is interesting as a concept, but we every time every time I go into a target, I'm I just I'm, I, I it's the same thing comes out of my mouth, which is. Uh. <laughs> oh. On that note, that's gonna do it for this week's Motley Fool Money radio show. Show is mixed by Dan Boyd. I'm Dylan Lewis. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.